Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to North Park Community Church. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am excited to be here this morning to preach and to begin this new sermon series that we've titled, as you can see up there, See That It Was Good, Genesis and the Story of the World. Uh, the point of this series, just so you know, is actually not to go through the entire book of Genesis, though it's possible as we kind of dialogue as a staff on uh, what the next series is going to be and stuff like that, it's possible we could actually do all of Genesis over a long period of time. But the focus of this series in particular is to go through the first four chapters of the book of Genesis, which of course means that we are focusing in this series in the first four chapters of the entire Bible, of all the scriptures. We're going back to the very beginning of it. And our hope as we do this, is that we would all get a glimpse of what we just sang about, that we get a glimpse of God's goodness, that we would get a, gl a glimpse of the goodness of our world that God has made, of the goodness of the lives that he has given to us, and the goodness of where God is taking our world. Because as we will look at in this series, as we move through it, our world right now exists in a state of pain and suffering. It is broken. It is deeply, deeply broken. Things are not the way that they were meant to be. And the result of this is that for many of us here and for countless people who live in the world, we feel hopeless. We feel like the brokenness that we see around us and we feel within ourselves is unfixable. And we feel like the journey of life that we are on is aimless or is meaningless. And there really are a lot of us who feel this way. In fact, recent studies have shown that especially among younger people, but this is kind of true in all demographics, over the last 10 years, there has been a rapid rise in places like Canada, the US, England, Australia of rates of depression, hopelessness, anxiety, and loneliness. In fact, among some demographics, there are kind of shocking stats to look at. But the CDC came up with a study six months ago that said that among teenage girls, rates of anxiety and depression are up to 60% across entire countries. This is the state that many people exist within, which has to mean that many of you in this room feel it right now. You came here with a sense of hopelessness. You came here with a sense of anxiety, a sense of depression. You're feeling it right now. Well, if that is you, our prayer, our hope, as we look at the early parts of Genesis, is that we would show you that there actually is meaning. We would remind you that there is hope and that there is a God who is at work and is committed to this world and is committed to you and is taking it somewhere that is good. And if that's not you, if you would not identify as someone who's actually dealing with those extreme things right now in your life, my hope is still that you would be reminded of this reality so that we would be a church that would not just care for those here and remind one another here of what is actually true, of the hope that we have in God, but so that we would be an entire community that would embody hope because our world so desperately needs to see people who know how to live right now with a sense that there is goodness and that this world is going somewhere that there is hope that we can cling to, and it's found in our God who loves us. Because what we hope to show you starting today is that we are living in the midst of the true story of our world. 
And that while at this point there is pain and division and brokenness, that this is not the way that God originally made it. No, the setting of the story was good. Our world was originally good. But not only that, the creator and author of this story, he is good, and he is powerful, and he is remarkable, and he is so removed, and yet at the same time, he is completely committed to this world being what he wanted it to be, so that he's chosen, despite the fact that he is wholly other and removed, he has chosen to give himself to this world, to relate to it, to pour himself out for it, so that one day we could all once again see that it is good, which means that there is hope for this world, there's hope for our lives, there's meaning for our lives, and that is what I hope we kind of dive into as we walk through this series, and today I want to start to do that by focusing on these first five verses, but doing a little bit differently than I normally would, rather than kind of moving through the verses and trying to pull out all the various things there, there's kind of four different phrases I essentially want to focus on and point out what do these mean? Those phrases are, in the beginning, Okay, what does that phrase mean? Next one is, God created, and then, and he said, and he saw that it was good. Those are the four different things we were looking at. But let me pray first, and then we can really dive in. So please, please pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and for your grace and that you love us. Thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that right now, just, God, as you spoke the world into being, Just as your spirit, Lord, was active, hovering the face of the deep, Lord, may your word right now be active, may your spirit be active to create us anew for you, to shape us and mold us so that we might know you. I want to pray the people who are in this room right now, Lord, who are feeling lost and confused, Lord, my words are completely inadequate. Lord, any work I've done is completely inadequate, Lord, to truly comfort someone. Only you can do that. So I'm asking right now, God, that you would speak. Please, Lord, in your mercy and your grace, would you speak and comfort each one of us to know who you are, to know what you have done, to know what you are doing, so that we might love those who are here and be a community that embodies and shows that to the world. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's start by looking here at verse one. So it says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, so these are the incredible words that begin the Bible. Now, I realize that they may not feel very incredible to us, but the reason I say that they are incredible is because why they may feel so familiar to us, there is so much that is being communicated through these words. And so I want to start with this first phrase here. In the beginning. Why does the Bible start that way? It implies, I think, a lot more than we normally think. So there actually are a lot of other ways that the Bible could have begun. It could have said something like, before anything else existed, or a long time ago, God created, or something like that, both of which would have been acceptable and would have made sense. In fact, both of those would have sounded probably more familiar to the Israelites because in other accounts of the origins of our world, that's actually kind of how they begin. A lot of times they actually begin before the creation of the world with the gods kind of doing weird things and battling and other strange stuff. We'll get more into that in a little bit. But yeah, they don't really begin in this kind of way. But rather than saying before anything else existed or a long time ago, the Bible says something different. In the beginning. And that phrase itself means so much. And the reason that is is because what that phrase, and really it's one Hebrew word 
that we translate as in the beginning. What that word itself really implies is not just kind of the start of something that could just go on and on and on and on and on. What that word means is the beginning of something that has an end. It implies that what is not actually going on here in Genesis is not just kind of like telling the origins. It means this is the beginning of a story, a true story. It is history, but it is the beginning of a story that has a plot. It shows us right away that Genesis is not merely telling us the origins of the world, and that the Bible is not merely just kind of throwing out events of what happened throughout history, but rather that it's telling us the true story of the world. Okay, that's really important for us to get. You see, often when we come to the text of Genesis, we come asking questions purely about the origins of our world. Okay, we read the rest of chapter one, and we want to know how accurate is this description concerning what truly happened when God created all things. And of course, those questions are extremely important. They are very good questions. In fact, if you're interested, Dale Baird, a formal elder here, is going to lead a class actually pretty soon here. You can probably register for it at northpark.ca slash register when it becomes available. We'll have more details about it in the coming weeks, but he's going to talk about Genesis 1 and the various views on the age of the earth. Those questions are important. However, Genesis was not actually specifically written to talk about how old the earth is, even though that's an important question. It was written to talk about whether or not the world has a meaning, whether or not it actually has a purpose, whether or not the lives that we live have anything about them that has any semblance of truth, of goodness, or a purpose to them. You see, when this was written for Israel, there were other competing accounts of how the world began. And all of them, and we'll talk more about them in a little bit, but all of them essentially showed the world as not good, as randomly created. Basically, gods are fighting, one dies, their guts spill out, and that becomes the earth. There's no purpose behind it. There's no intention. There is no goodness. It's random. And life then has kind of no purpose other than just appeasing the gods and trying to survive, which, of course, could sound a little familiar to us because most modern accounts, while they don't include gods, essentially also say that the purpose of life, if we just go back to the beginning, is just can we survive? It's the survival of the fittest. Genesis was written to address that by showing us, by declaring, this is good. There is purpose. There is meaning. And I'm wanting to point out that that begins with this very first word, in the beginning. Because that implies the beginning of a story, the beginning of something that has a telos, that's moving towards something. It means that there is a purpose. And I know that kind of sounds a little bit strange. Why does a story imply purpose? But the reality is, that all these questions that we all have, that humans have been asking throughout all time, such as why are we here? Where did this all come from? Where is it all going? How does my life fit into it? All of those flow out of one huge question, which is what is the true story of our world? And is there one? Because whether we realize it or not, story is actually how all of us find meaning. It's how true meaning is created for human life. And let me give you an illustration to explain this, which is completely stolen from a guy named Alistair McIntyre. Okay, so he's a philosopher in his book, After Virtue. McIntyre discusses how we come to see something, an action or a life, as intelligible or as making sense only by actually seeing it within a narrative. 
Okay, no action makes sense unless we have a narrative around it. And the way that he kind of illustrates this is he says this, okay? So imagine you're standing waiting for a bus and there's a young man standing next to you who just all of a sudden yells out the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. If that were to happen, it would probably seem odd. Frankly, I hope it would seem odd to you if that happened, okay? And the problem is not the sentence itself. Obviously, we can understand the words. We can understand what the sentence means. But the problem, McIntyre points out, is how does that action, how does that event make any sense? How is it intelligible to us? Then he asks, well, how can we make it intelligible? What would have to be true for that to actually make some kind of sense? And he basically gives four different options. The first, he says, well, maybe the young man has mental health struggles and is simply shouting the statement at random intervals. Okay, that could be a possible explanation. But he lists three other possible explanations. Okay, here's the first one. Maybe the young man has mistaken you for someone who yesterday had approached him in the library and asked, do you by chance know the Latin name of the common wild duck? Okay, that's option number one. Option number two, the young man has just come from a session with his therapist. The therapist is urging him to break down his shyness by talking to strangers. But what shall I say, the young man asks. Oh, anything at all, says the therapist. Yeah, that's option number two. Or option number three, he's a Soviet spy, waiting at a prearranged rendezvous and uttering the ill-chosen code sentence, which will identify him to his contact. Those are three other options that could make that someone intelligible. But McIntyre points out... Every single one is placing the event, the action, within a narrative. And every other explanation we could give, and we could give tons of different theories, it will always have to give a story to explain why that makes any sense, because that's how we find meaning. And that's how we find meaning, not just in, our per- in, in the kind of individual things that we do, but of our lives as well. Our whole lives only make sense when we can place them in a larger narrative. There's no meaning outside of that. This is why Leslie Newbigin says, the way we understand, all of us, the way all of us understand human life depends on what is our conception of the human story. What is the real story of which my life story is part? But this is why it's so important to see that the way that the Bible begins is by actually admitting that all of history is a story. It is not just random. There is actual meaning. And that's why the Bible begins by saying, in the beginning. Because what we are all caught up in is something that has purpose. It has a telos. In fact, we know that this is true, or we get more firm in this truth, when seeing that not only is there a story, but there is one author of this entire story, and he is writing it all. And that's what we also see in the rest of verse 1. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's in the beginning of the story. When this all began, there was no one else there. There was no rival. Anyone that God battles against in any kind of way is someone who he created. In the beginning, God made all things. Okay, think about that. Everything we see, everything around us, the soil that our feet touch, the water that we drink, the sun, moon, stars that other nations would worship, those things that look down on us from the heavens, he made those. Everything from planets to molecules, 
mountains to grains of sand, whales to insects, humans to worms, birds to fish, trees and grass, fire and wind, colors. You ever thought about that? Every single color flowed out of him. Colors, rainbows, feelings, emotions, laughter, apples, oranges, raspberries, sugar, spices, and salt, sight, sound, smells, touch, all of it comes from one and one alone. All of the remarkable diversity in our world, everything that battles against God and everything that serves him, all of it comes from him and him alone. He alone stands outside of it all. He alone is its author. He alone is its creator. So if there's a story, there is one author who is writing it. And so again, think about what that means. If all of creation, if all things find their source in him, then all creation, all things, all their existence to him are meant to bow down to him and nothing else. There should be no rival in our hearts because he has no rivals at all. You see, this again is very different from the other accounts that the ancient Israelites had and how they thought about the origins of the world. So again, in the ancient world, there were many other creation accounts. And one of the things that was kind of distinct about them in comparison to Genesis is often the gods were like intermixed with creation in some kind of way. So there's like the sun god, the earth god, the god of war, the god of fortune, the god of time, the god of death, the god of harvest. Okay, they're divine in some kind of way, but they're like connected in a very intricate way to creation itself. But also, these gods are rivals. They're fighting against one another. They're battling. And one gets killed and something, and I'm not, like, I'm honestly, I'm being tame when I say that, like, their guts spill out. Like, you read it, you're like, hmm, that's gross. It's very strange. And that's basically what happens in the Enuma Elish of Babylon. The god Marduk cuts the goddess Tiamat in half, and half of her becomes the sky, well, later, the blood of the god Kingu becomes humanity. Like, it's just a lot of gore. In Hesiod's the- uh, Theogony, the details of which I won't describe, it's the same thing. You have it all over the place. What that means is that, basically, the marks of the foundational pictures of our world and other creation accounts are blood, gore, rival gods, chaos, randomness. There's no intention. There's no purpose. There's no one author behind it all. If there is an author, they're battling against others. There's war. There's a fight. And through it, we just kind of show up. And honestly, while our modern-day theories concerning the origins of our world are not nearly as graphic, they also often depict the origins of a world as being essentially material and without any kind of inherent purpose behind them. In many modern depictions of the story of the world, the beginning is marked by randomness and chance. The world comes into being, well, because it happened to come into being, and there's nothing beyond it. That those who are able to survive in it are able to do so because they are the fittest to survive. Again, it's rivalry. It's random. It may obey the laws of cause and effect, but the application of those laws There's no purpose behind it of all. What that then means is that our lives have no purpose behind them at all. If the true story of the world has rivalry and conflict built into its very fabric, and if the world began with no inherent purpose, then not only should we just assume that divisions and strife that are in our world are just natural and normal with no real hope of change, I mean, if that's how the world was born, why could we ever think there would be peace and harmony and unity now? But it also means that your life 
my life, all of our lives, have virtually no meaning at all. And those are the public ideas of what the story of our world is, which is why, at least in part, I think so many of us feel hopeless. In fact, if that is the story of our world, it means that we could not claim at all that there's any kind of true ethic or morality that we should hold to because there's no author behind it all. We couldn't even call something good or bad because to call something good or bad necessitates us knowing what the purpose of a thing is. If I pick up a clock that doesn't tell time, I know it's a bad clock because I know what a clock is meant to do. It's supposed to tell time. What if I didn't know its purpose? What if there was no purpose? What if there is no meaning behind this world? There's no purpose then to our lives. We couldn't label anything a good life or a bad life. It just is. It's a meaningless experience. And honestly, maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you feel, you might think differently, but maybe you feel as if life doesn't have a meaning. You work, you labor, you seek to take care of others, for your family, of your friends, but for what? Does any of this have actual inherent meaning? Is there any purpose? Or maybe you long for things to be different. You look around at the world and you see the division, the rivalries, the strife, and you feel that this isn't right but you've lost hope for change. You just feel like the constant striving to be better than others, to win, to defeat others is a game you don't want to play anymore. But it just seems, and you're almost being told constantly that this is built into the very fabric of our world. This is what it means to be alive. Because in many modern theories of the origins of our world, it is. We are just locked into a battle for survival. And only the fittest will make it out. We might not have these rival gods that we're just kind of running around trying to appease anymore, now it's just us We're running around trying to appease ourselves or trying to survive ourselves. And since the world was created without an inherent purpose, your life feels like it has no inherent purpose unless you self-create it. But come on. We all know that only works for so long. And I don't say that with some kind of like pejorative thing like looking down at people. I say that with like my heart aches for that. We all know it only works for so long to self-create meaning. You can only try to convince yourself for some of there is meaning when deep down you don't believe that there is. But the Bible, Genesis, is telling you that that's not true, that that is a lie, that there is a purpose to our world, that it is a story that is moving somewhere, that it began in goodness, it will move towards goodness because there is an author over it all who cares. Because that is what we see in the first verse. In the beginning, the one God, the only God, he created the heavens and the earth. No rivals to battle. No war to fight. No randomness. No chance. He wasn't working at someone and by accident it was produced. No, there was one God who purposely, intentionally made all things. That is the foundational picture of our world. It's the picture of one from whom all things flow, and that's one that we all owe our allegiance to. It is the picture of one standing apart and above us 
So that any divide that we inherently have is not between gods who fight. It's not between ethics that we just kind of choose. It's not between peoples, but between all creation and the creator who chose to create it. It is the picture then of us being completely dependent on him while he is not dependent on us in any way. It's the picture of a God who was God before creation, did not create to satisfy something in himself, but rather chose to create. Okay, think about that. As opposed to war then being the foundation of our world, as opposed to rivalries and battle being the foundation of our world or randomness, the picture we are given in Genesis of a God who chooses to create, which means that war and chaos and randomness, that's not in the fabric of our world. What's the fabric? Grace. Peace intentionality, purpose, because in the beginning, a God who needed nothing, who did not need us whatsoever, chose to create all things. The beginning, then, is a picture of a gift of God giving to us. Do you feel like the world is not meant, is not the way it's supposed to be? It's because it's not. Because in the beginning, God poured this out for us. We are not inherently locked into some kind of rivalry. Rather, we are inherently participating in a story of grace, of a God who gives life to those who he doesn't need to give it to. In fact, we see this even more when we look beyond verse 1 and the way that he creates. Okay, because, okay, look with me in verses 3 through 5. I'm going to focus most of all on this one phrase, verse 3. But in verse 3, it says this. Then God said. Okay, in verse 4 it says, then he separated. And then verse 5 says, God called. Okay, I'm not sure if you've ever really thought about these little phrases, but they are so important in what they mean. Why did God not just think creation into existence? Why did he speak it into existence? Why did he not just kind of think and everything was fine? Boom! And it was all there. Why did he actually take his hands and separate it? Why did he intentionally call things? Why did he speak? Why did God say, let there be light, rather than think? Well, part of the reason has to be because, because God himself is relational. That within himself, he is relational because speaking. Why would you speak unless there's something you're relating to? Speaking is a relational act. This is part of what is so wildly different from every other conception of God. It is why we can say that God himself is love because speaking is essentially the first indication that God himself may be one and yet many, that he is three in one. For if God were just a single monad, he could not be inherently relational, which means he couldn't be inherently loving. He couldn't. But okay, why did he speak about creation? Because God is choosing not just to be relational within himself, but to relate to us, to give himself to creation. You see, thinking, thought, is an isolating act. It's something we can do while remaining distant from those around us, even if we don't intend it. Okay, if I go on a date with my wife, and I think she looks beautiful, which I do. That's right, honey. I do. But if I just think that, and I never say it, she's going to feel distant from me. And not just feel distant, but we will be distant. Because if I just think about her, but I do not speak, I'm not actually giving myself to her. 
We're not actually relating to one another. In speaking, we relate. We bring ourselves together. We give ourselves to the other. In fact, speaking reveals who we are to other people, which means it's a vulnerable thing to do because to speak is to open yourself up to others. Like, have you ever been in a group of people, maybe friends, family, maybe a classroom, and the topic of conversation is something that you have a lot of opinions about, but the way people are talking about it, you disagree. Okay, you've got something to say. You want to kind of enter in and maybe disagree and push back, but you choose to remain silent. Why? Why did you do that? Why did you not talk? Because we don't want to put ourselves out there. And if you would have spoken your mind, you would have done that. You would have opened yourself up to being known, to being truly seen, and thus possibly rejected. In speaking, we open ourselves up to others. But God, the God of the universe, who made all things, through whom all things owe their existence, through whom absolutely everything we see and experience, but his holy other who is separated from them, he chose to speak the world into existence. Why? Because he loves it. Because he chose from the very beginning to give himself to it. He is not the blind watchmaker, as Richard Dawkins likes to say, who just puts it together and steps away and whatever. He's spoken into existence because he was giving himself to it. He chose from the very beginning that this is going to be something he cares about, that he will give himself to it, he will reveal himself to it, he will love it, and he will care for it. And he did it all so that it would be good. This last phrase that I want to look at for a moment here is this phrase that we see first in verse 4, but then we see it all throughout chapter 1. It's a phrase that I'm sure almost all of you know. It's, and he saw that it was good, which is probably technically a clause, but, you know. Anyways, and he saw that it was good. Notice what is not said there. It does not say that God said that it was good or that he just thought that it was good. It says that he saw that it was good. Again, why is that important? Why is it that it's sight here? It's important because it shows us that God is evaluating. He's actually weighing and processing what he has made. It shows us that God, in creating, is like an artist who is at work, who keeps crafting, keeps laboring, until he can stand back and look at it because he's actually wanting it to be something. God did not just throw the world together and say, that's good, because I did it. No, he actually labored at it. It's not like, I mean, that's basically what I was like in school, like really young, right? You just gonna do it, you're like, wow, whatever, I did it, I'm just gonna hand it in. No, God labors at it and then stands back and sees, that's what I want it to be. God carefully spoke it and shaped it into existence, giving himself to it, so that it would be something, because he has desires, longings for this world to be good. And that is the foundational picture that we get of our world at the beginning of the story. We live in a world that didn't come into existence randomly. It wasn't through a war between gods. It wasn't just material things that happened to produce everything here so that there's no meaning and it's just randomness. We live in a world that was made by a single, almighty, holy other God, who has no rival, who has no equal, from whom all things flow and to whom all things were made to worship. And yet, 
this God who is wholly other and does not need us, chose from the very beginning to relate to this world, to give himself to this creation so that it would be what he wanted it to be, so that he and we and all would be able to look and see that it was good. Okay, we need to realize that that desire has not changed. That God's longing and his commitment, it has never changed. Yes, he is still so far beyond us, but he has still consistently chosen to relate to us, to give himself to us. His desire is for this world, for our lives, for your life, for all things to be good. That has not changed, and that is why. That is why, despite the pain in our world, despite the suffering that has come because of our humanities, our rebellion against him, despite the fact that we thought that we could make the world better, we thought that if we didn't have him, things would be better, and so we pushed back against him. He has chosen, despite that, to continue to give himself to creation, to the very creation that has rejected him. And it's why he's chosen in love to actually not just then speak the world into existence, not then just have a word that creates all things, but it's why he chose to have that very word become flesh, to participate in the creation that he made and to let us kill him so that he could die for us and rise again and that we could say, indeed, he has no rival. He has no equal. The boast of sin and the grave are put under his feet and he did it because he longs for creation to be what he always longed for it to be. Because he's committed to making sure that this world that he made good will one day again be good. Because he wants to make sure that every single one of us know that however you're feeling right now, the hopelessness, the aimlessness, the losses that you feel in your life, he has come to make all things new. He has come to make it new, to wipe away tears from all faces. And so he took on flesh to die for us. You see, what I want us to see is that glorious grace, that mercy that he gave us to the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that was not God acting differently than what he had always been doing. Because in the beginning, God, who was wholly other, gave himself to us so that this world would be good. And he is so committed to that that he was willing to give his life on the cross so that we could truly enjoy his goodness. And that, brothers and sisters, friends, that is the true story of the world. So may we know that this morning. May we seek to actually worship God because of that. May we seek to be a church that shows that hope, the world that so desperately needs to know that there is hope, that there is meaning, that there is purpose because of a God who made it all and is remaking it all in himself. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would use these words today, Father, to comfort us and to renew our resolve, Lord, to serve you, to honor you. But may we do so in the freedom, knowing, God, that from the very beginning, you have been pouring yourself out from us. In the very beginning, you have been loving us. From the very beginning, Lord, you have been giving us things we don't deserve. 
We thank you, Father, that that ultimately reached the climax in Jesus Christ being given for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would then stand firm on that. And would you, in your mercy and your grace, and enable us to be a community that would show that to others. Lord, our world is desperately, desperately broken, as you know, Father, better than we do. God, may we be a place that gives hope to others. I pray that the people here who need to know this hope, Lord, would you please, God, again, use these words that I've spoken, God, to be your words, Lord, because I am not enough, we are not enough. Speak to us to know you, to know the love and hope that you have given. But may it not just stay here, may it flow out into the streets of London, Ontario, that people would know what you have done and who you are and the love you have for them. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.